Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Our next guest I met when I was in my late 20s at a youth ministry conference, when I used to do that for a living. She was someone who instantly grabbed my attention because I knew how smart and wise she was. Over time through social media, I saw this woman transform before my eyes and uncover truths for herself and the community she served. These truths were hard truths, but the acknowledgement of them changed many lives and continue to do so today. Rosella Haiti White is the Love Big Coach, a social impact entrepreneur who is focused on nurturing love that is life-giving, justice-seeking, and healing so that all can thrive. She is a public theologian, spiritual life and leadership coach, inspirational speaker, and writer committed to embodying love that is bold, intentional, and generous. Rosella is the owner of RHW Consulting, LLC a coaching agency focused on supporting women and women-led organizations as they navigate change, transition, and conflict utilizing a love ethic. RHW Consulting LLC coaches clients seeking personal and professional transformation. Rosella is the author of the book, Love Big, The Power of Revolutionary Relationships to Heal the World. This book had me nodding my head in agreement and in the need to find the courage that Rosella holds. She is a gift and someone who I deeply admire and hope to be like someday. It is an honor to be speaking with Rosella. Rosella, I'm so happy that you are here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love you so much, and I'm so excited to see, well, see you for those listening. You can't see us, but I can see Kara. (laughs) So in my intro, I talked about how when I met you, I was just like immediately taken by you. I don't know if you knew this, but because I was like, this person's wise. (laughs) (laughs) I just could tell. And then obviously we were in a workshop together around youth ministry. And just, Mm -hmm. I think the, the things you had to say just brought so much more depth to the conversations that we were having. And so that's one of the reasons why I instantly appreciated you. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you very much. So one of the things too that I also talked about is the way that I feel grateful and I feel grateful and blessed that you are someone who also kind of shares your journey of as you are processing life and as things coming <laughs> to you mm-hmm. um, and the way that you share it with people because one, I don't think you realize the impact that has on people like myself who is also trying to figure, I mean, everyone's trying to figure out life, but I want to say who still struggles with an essence of courage. And mm. so when I see you ruminating and digging through and then sharing that and some of the thoughts that you have it is it's transformative for me and it's something where it just um 
it gives me a lot to think about and it gives me hope. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. So one of the things that you were really honest about was when we are from the, grew up and worked and studied in the ELCA uh, Lutheran uh, congregation. And you worked for Churchwide in Chicago, right? In young adult ministry. Um, and it was during that time when you could you know, no longer take that what was unfolding in front of your eyes. So can you tell us a bit about that and how you made the change to really just honor yourself? Mm-hmm. There are two things that you said that are sticking with me, the essence of courage and the, the change to honor yourself, right? Um, because the, the former, the essence of courage, I would never have thought of myself as courageous when I was in the midst of all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, can I curse? Is that? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in the midst of the shit, right? Like I didn't, I never thought of myself as courageous. I just thought of myself as, doing or being the next most faithful thing for me. Um, There's something to be said, I think, when we are not operating in alignment, alignment with what we value, with what we believe, with who we ultimately are, um, and how we're being in the world. And I feel like so many of us have experienced that. Like, I know I'm not the only one. And I think sometimes there's seasons of life where we're out of alignment for any number of reasons, right? It's not about judging it, but for me, it's just about noticing it. And I think as someone who grew up not only in a church, but then became an employee and leader in that church, right? It just becomes very sticky mm-hmm. because the, the space and place that was responsible for my formation, leadership and spirituality and theology was also a space and place that was deeply flawed, which makes sense because it's made up of humans and humans are are flawed even as we're incredible beings made in the image of God. Um, And I think I had just gotten to a point where I recognized that the space and place that I was in was not breeding life in me Mm -hmm. and that led to some deep questioning, some deep wondering, because at the end of the day, I'm about that, which is life-giving. Um, and while the work I was doing, there were aspects of it that were ultimately life-giving. I mean, you know, I love working with young people. I love working with young adults. It was both a joy and a privilege and an honor to support and accompany um, that population for almost 20 years of my life. And I was a part of a system that was diseased, right? There was disease in the system. And again, this is true of so many systems. It's not just me picking on the denomination, but um, because of that disease, then it led to practices and ways of being that just didn't foster life in so many of us that worked for it, not right? And so, I just got to the point though that this, I couldn't do it anymore. And I always tell the story that I was in my condo on Lake Michigan in Chicago one night and it was in April because Beyonce's Lemonade had just dropped her visual album Mm -hmm. and I was watching it with my glass of wine 
And this particular album of hers was a retrospective of the pain that she had experienced in her relationship and how that pain led to, led to, I don't want to say pain has to lead to growth, but I think pain can lead to growth. And she metabolized that instead of it metastasizing within her. And so I'm watching this visual album of this incredible Black woman who's the same age as I am from the same city that I'm from, you know, put her art in the world in a way that was life-giving, in a way that was so creative. And I just was bawling. Like I'm watching this and I'm bawling because it resonates deeply to someone who is struggling. And, you know, her backdrop was around romantic relationship, but we can extrapolate that for any relationship. When you are deeply disappointed and when you, your heart is broken and when um, grief, right, is threatening to take over, when resentment is simmering beneath the surface. And I feel like that album, that piece of art actually reflected back to me what I had been experiencing. And so I remember I called my dad that night and I'm boohooing with the wine and like, he's like, what is going on? And I'm like, I'm watching Beyonce. He's like, okay. And, you know, he listened and he said, you know, you can always come home. Mm-hmm. You can always come home. And this was in the spring of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I, over the last few years, six years, I've recognized that that was probably one of the most profound and prophetic things that my father has ever said to me. And he has said a lot of profound and prophetic things, but that began my journey back home. And I thought that it was me leaving one space to go home to another physical space, but it really was about beginning the journey of coming home to myself. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I've been on a process journey experience of healing which I feel like is lifelong because the more you expose and heal and clean out then there's something else I I feel like it's sometimes like a -a whack-a-mole right like you're like wait a minute now I have to do this (laughs) yes and like so it just keeps going deeper yeah um and ultimately it was about coming home to myself and finding alignment so for me it was just the feeling of disease in myself this Mm -hmm. recognition that I was not living in accordance with what I valued, with what I believed. And I'm not saying that like, it's not about, I think the extremes of like, I'm out here doing all of this stuff that's just negative because that's that's the thing that's so insidious about it. Mm-hmm. From all, for all accounts, for all intents and purposes, I was doing good work. I had a good job, you know, from my parents' perspective, I was paid well, I had benefits, you know, all the benefits. Right. <laughs> and, um, I was afforded a ton of really great opportunities, connections, relationships, education, and it still wasn't, it wasn't right. Hmm. Um, So Beyonce, wine, and this fateful night listening to my dad invite me back home. I was going to say, I gave you permission. Exactly. Exactly. And I think for so many of us, we do need permission. Even though it seems nonsensical, especially as adults, like, no. yeah, right. But, and I've said that, I literally have said this recently to a group of friends, like I'm an adult, I don't ask for permission because for me, it's like reminding myself that I do have agency. I do have autonomy. I do have the power to make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to ask for permission anymore, mm. but I still have to remind myself that because so much of our society is about permission giving. 
who can, who can't, what can be done, what shouldn't be done. Yeah. I think that's what that right there, I think is what so many people have problems with, right? Is the ability to say, oh, wait, I can give myself permission now. And I think part of that is living in a society too, that's been run by really a lot of authoritarian mindset, even within church spaces and things like that, that we feel like we have to um, seek the approval of those before us or those above us. And, and that's the issue right there too, the hierarchy of, of life and how we have been set up with our systems and things that then to give ourselves or find that sense of agency and autonomy to say, I can ask myself for permission and I can do this. I don't need to uh, seek that of others. And even as you say that, Kara, like I'm thinking, who gets to say what is acceptable and who gets to like give approval? Mm-hmm. Like, what are these forces that we are finding ourselves beholden to? Mm-hmm. And do we take the time to reflect on and question that? And that leads me into the work that I do as a coach, right? Because so much of my work is around question asking, not for me to give an answer, but for either the client or the organization or the group I'm working with to really explore these questions within themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, because oh, I think that's what's been frustrating me the most, to be honest, like as a woman in business, as mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mom, as a uh, wife, as then also just living as a woman in our country and watching everything that's unfolding right now. And then recognizing so much of how our Christian heritage in the West has been, um, you know, rooted in ideas of authoritarianism. And I don't know if I said that right. I always mispronounce words, but Mm -hmm. um, we just say it with confidence. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I make up my own words. (laughs) Yes. We write. That's what writers do. do it constantly <laughs> but anyway you know what I'm saying it's just yeah. so frustrating and I think that's like there's this just like this internal <laughs> anger that I have around that to be like no what do you do what are we doing to each other you know especially like you said coming out of the church what I feel like it's supposed to be about freedom and liberation it's ultimately about control and suppression mm-hmm. yeah. right and like we got to keep. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna, and I say all the time to people, and how are we ever supposed to understand then what a sense of intimacy and love really means when we operate out of that space? Listen, because can intimacy and love be present where there's only control and suppression and oppression? I don't think so. Mm-mm. Unless it was consensually so. talked about, right? Well, <laughs> Which, true. Right. Which true. it's not. I mean, that's not, true. right? We walk into that space already just, I don't know. That's a whole other podcast. Entirely <laughs> 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 other thing that we'll talk about. Yes, but that is my big thing. Of we're can't, we can't ever truly understand a sense of closeness the way that I think the creator or God imagined because we have set up these rules 
in systems that constantly tell us we're not okay. Yes. Yes. So then speaking of church, since we were just on that topic, how has your relationship changed with the church at large then? That's a good question because I've been struggling with it. Um, so I think I went from deep, like I literally went through the stages of grief, right? Like, so Elizabeth sure. Kubler-Ross and her stages of grief and not that it's linear, but the denial, the bargaining, the resentment, the anger, you know, all of that. Um, and I think where I am now is that I can respect those who find meaning and connection and um, community mm -hmm. within the confines or constructs of church as we traditionally understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also simultaneously feel like it's no longer for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that even as I work very closely alongside the church, but I had to extricate myself from the church being the center of my spiritual life, mm -hmm. if I were going to continue to work for the transformation that I believe is possible, right. I, couldn't, I couldn't hold both, me personally. I know others can, I couldn't. Um, and so there is a deep and abiding respect for it. Almost as like, you know, when you have that relationship with someone that, that didn't work out for whatever reason, and you move through the stages of grief. And like, I think about Eat, Pray, Love when she talks about whenever you think about them, send them love and light, right? Like, yeah. I no longer think about it with like this deep pain or disappointment. I'm like, oh, I wish nothing but love and light, right? And healing and wholeness for, for you. And I say for you, for church. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think I've articulated that out loud at all. Mm. So taught off the press. Like. <laughs> first <laughs> yeah so it's like yeah because I couldn't figure out how to keep myself and I think that when I think about the coming home mm -hmm. you know Dr. Tamar Bryant um a black woman a president of the American Psychological Association and ordained um minister in the AME church like mm -hmm. amazing she has a book and a podcast both called homecoming and this whole notion around healing, right? What if healing is not about progressing through these stages, but about ultimately coming home to yourself. Yeah. And so like it, and I'm reading the book like very slowly mm -hmm. because it just is one of those things that's like, oh, this is, this is hitting some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like in coming home for myself, to myself, I let go of also what became an ideal like I had very positive, uh, formative experiences in church and in the congregations that I was a part of, right? From birth through, I would say through the end of high school. Mm -hmm. um, and then worked in a few churches, you know, after that. And again, had great relationships, saw the spirit active and at work. Um, things shifted, I think, when I moved from congregational work to other types of church work. Um, yeah, so I look at it with love and light. I wish it well. And I understand that I'm also called to be alongside of it. Like I do understand myself to be a theologian um, of the pastoral ilk, if you will. Um, and that's that. And I think as I, began, as I began the journey of coming home to myself, I also reconnected with both cultural and ancestral 
practices that had not been hidden in the context of my family, but that I hadn't taken as seriously because the church doesn't create space for buried expressions and or connections to the divine. And whether we believe it or not, or want it to be true or not, to be a part of uh, organized religion in any way, shape or form. Um, and I mean, when I say that to be a part of, to be a member of, to, to profess the creeds, all of that is ultimately saying that there is a particular way to believe. Right. And for me, my way of believing expanded. And so that's also making it hard to fully connect back with the church as my spiritual home. I resonate with literally almost everything you just said in terms of the fact of, I had wonderful experiences with the church growing up for me as well. It became a, a family for me when I was struggling with in my own family and that my home church was just delightful, just really cared for me things like this. Um, but it was, I feel the same when I started working for churches and when I was going through uh, the candidacy process and different things like this. Um, but really when I started living into my own self and started to really also learn about sexuality mm. and start to feel like putting on, starting to wear my own skin a little bit was when things changed and where I felt not as accepted or cared for by the church. And I think just like you said, because there wasn't that um, space, right. To imagine other ways of being able to connect mm -hmm. things. And really I have, again, like I learned, like I tell people when I took dance classes in seminary, I learned more about God in my dance class than I did my mm, class. Yes. You know? And then <laughs> Um, when yes. I studied sex at the University of Michigan, shout out, mm -hmm. go blue. I learned more about God ever in that class and relationships. And then that just expanded my idea of who God is and how we meet each other in this world and, and the way we have set up some of our institutions are, is just so limiting and yeah. limits our capability of expression and connection. I think we're all, um, I think maybe naturally are born with and want to. Yes. You know, when you look at kids on, you know, we were just at, um, we just went to an apple orchard on mm -hmm. Saturday and my sister-in-law laughed and cried because she saw kids just like running around asking each other to play, yes. starting to play tag, and then finding each other and laying on top of each other. <laughs> like they, yes. Like there was like a group of four siblings who just stacked themselves on top of each other, laying on this hill. And then other kids came around and joined them. And like, <laughs> they just started to like laugh and cry. She goes, I don't think I've ever seen anything so genuine, you know? And I was like, yeah. cause that is our natural I think instinct that somewhere down the road we are told is not okay. And I'm like, what? you know, <laughs> this weekend I was at a trampoline park for my seven-year-old niece's birthday mm -hmm. and witnessing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. The kids put on their anti-slip socks and go yeah. running and jumping and crashing into each other and falling on top of each other and 
giggling and every now and then maybe someone one of the little ones got bumped and would come crying and they'd go run back out and Mm -hmm. you know but like I love those examples because you know whether it's scriptural when we think about Jesus talking about faith like a child or through the eyes of a child I think there's so much wisdom there Mm -hmm. because when we look at kids when we imagine ourselves those of us who were able to be free because I know everyone was not able to experience that um there is something to be said about the power of play and embodied movement. That's why I love when you talked about dance. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, one of my favorite words is embodied or embodiment mm-hmm. because I still, I would say, I don't know if adhere is the right word, respect, or I think the, the, the Christian story is the root for me right. of my, my faith and spirituality, even as the tree that's bloomed has so many other things that are a part of it. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's always been because of a God that decided to take on human flesh and call it good. And I believe all the things that go with the body, right? Like all of the things we are ashamed of, the body parts, the body functions, the body desires, like it is good. Mm -hmm. And I think we've gone horribly off course when we demonize it and we demonize the body because if I, you know, continue down that thread, we're made in the image of the divine Mm -hmm. and the divine took on human skin. Then what are we saying? Mm -hmm. Right. When we demonize this. Um, Yes. It just makes me want to get up and dance and be like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I also went on um, Saturday after the birthday party, a group of friends and I, there's a, a, organization movement in Houston called Field Dates, where it's essentially field games for adults. It's 21 and up. What? And you That's play amazing. like musical chairs, uh, adult, like human foosball, like three-legged race, potato what? sack race. Like, and so I went from the seven-year-old party to that. And I was so anxious. Like my anxiety was on a thousand because I play always as a kid. I did not feel that freedom to move about in my body like that. I was the very, I mean, I love books. I read, I was a part of a group called Odyssey of the Mind, like very nerdy. (laughs) And, you know, I became a cheerleader later and got into my body by the time I got to high school and then college and I danced. But like, as a kid, I didn't have that playful way of being. And so it was interesting because I went with two of my friends who happened to be therapists. Oh God, like, and I'm like having this mini meltdown of like, okay, we're going to this place and we have to play these games and who's going to be picked on the team. And like, what if I'm not picked? And then what if I fall on the field? And, and one of them was like, Rosella, we're just going to have fun. And it hit me that like, I never really embraced that as a kid and I'm learning how to do it as an adult. Mm. Saying all to say, it was a great time to be in my body and to have fun and to play um, and it's interesting because I, from a sex standpoint and intimately physical standpoint, I totally had embraced that over the last, mm, I would say decade or so, mm-hmm. um, embraced who I am as a sexual being embraced, like how I communicate about my body embraced how I show up, what I want, what I desire, mm-hmm. but that element of play, yeah. like it made me really curious. Cause I was like, I'm really stressed about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, first of all, what a wonderful thing that whoever organized that put that together, because I think adults have forgotten how to play because we're so busy all the time. And it's like we have all these responsibilities. 
And I think that's what I say to kids all the time. I'm like, go out and play like kit with screens today. It's just so hard to get people to then yes. even be embodied. And I'm like, go outside and be, a, just be a kid, like go play, like figure what that means. Um, but I also think a, I've forgotten how to play and that sounds magical, but also I think because of the messages we too have gotten around sex, we don't know how to be playful too in the bedroom and that, oh. you know, and that's a place where you can play, where we can give ourselves permission to explore, not be like, we don't have to be perfect. Like part of the issue with pornography in our country is that sex becomes performance-based. Right. You right. Know? And so just being able to be present and have fun, like how wonderful would that be? If we ourselves it's very that? wonderful. <laughs> and there are all sorts of tools that help us do that. <laughs> So I don't know if this is TMI, but I figure you're a sex educator. So there's nothing that's really off the table. I mean, you know, <laughs> we talk about stuff. <laughs> but I have um, a sex deck and it has like, it's, and I, I am like a big, um, I use Oracle cards. I'm started to get into tarot because I just have always, where I'm afraid I go. So to your point of essence of courage, like, I feel like for me, it's like, there are things that scare me. And then that's a point that I need to push in. And when I say that, like scare me, not because I'm in danger, but scare me because there's all of this cultural baggage. And I use culture at large, not just my race or ethnicity, but the house I grew up in, the religious background I'm from, whatever. So I'm, I've been leaning into the tarot journey, but Oracle cards have been a thing for me. And so I found a sex deck, um, a while ago now and I do have a partner that I've used it with and it is incredible mm -hmm. because it has not only positions but it talks about the benefits it talks about what to watch out for it talks oh, about yeah, like how to do it and but I think the key thing is also being with someone that you can be playful with exactly right whoever that person or those people are mm -hmm. Right. I think that I've only been able to embrace that as I've done my own healing work, but also have engaged with partners. Um, and I, even, I don't even say partners. I'm thinking in this particular case with the partner that I fully trust and am able to be vulnerable with in a way that I have not been before. Um, because of some of that, like, you know, I think when we don't do sex education well, mm -hmm. then porn becomes the sex educator. It is the educator. Yeah, and educator. Yeah, right. And so, and I, I have, I have lots of thoughts about pornography. I don't think that um, I don't have too many judgmental thoughts about it. I'm more of the curious because my background is sociology. But I think that in the absence of multifaceted um, experiences of education, whatever is the most accessible wins. <laughs> Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we went from tapes to Pornhub. So you can find whatever I mean, you want on any so, screen. And just in, yeah, I mean, well, I will say that, um, I, like I've already told parents and I've mentioned this before, but the amount of questions I got from fifth and sixth graders this year around porn was, I mean, really? around, I mean, it made me realize they were looking at porn, like the questions they were asking 
was just, yeah. I was, I don't know why I'm surprised if they have phones, if they have access to a tablet, all you got to do is Google. Yeah. You just Google and you see so many images that even I feel like adults even aren't ready to see, <laughs> you know, like when you see them, you're like, oh, hey. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, we can do an entire episode just on, on pornography because it is, again, it's neither good. I tell people it's neither good nor bad. Right. Right. But, um, there is a certain audience to see it, but also we have to recognize the messages it gives us. We have to understand what's happening. Um, but also, you know, it is a place for some populations who are never seen. Right. Don't see themselves anywhere else. Right. And they can see themselves in that platform, which gives yep. them a sense of value. So that's why it's neither good, no bad, but there's many conversations that need to happen. Absolutely. So to change um, course a little bit. I mean, we went from church to porn. How else can we change course? It's all there. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you wrote a book. Yes. And I, I read the book. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it was just delightful. I really, like, I felt like every time I was reading, I was like, I just want to hug her. <laughs> It's just, there was, again, it was you sharing yourself and like being vulnerable. And there's just so much in there that I resonated with on many levels. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. I love that she wrote this book and that it's out there. So you talked a lot about believing the best in people and having deep compassion, right? And this sense of um, just care. So how has that notion been extended to yourself and the people you now serve as a coach? Mm. Mm. Well, I, I think that there is an inextricable link between what we do with ourselves, how we treat ourselves and what we do with others and how we treat others. Mm -hmm. So that believing the best for me was also an invitation for me to believe that about myself. Mm. For someone who um, lives with depression and has a multifaceted mind, it can be easy to believe the worst. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the practice of believing the best in people was actually an invitation for me to believe the best in myself because what I practice with myself, I can more easily embrace and practice with others. Um, and then as I practice that with others, then I'm able to go deeper with that with myself. Like it's this cycle, right? It's not just about the internal or interior. It's also about the external and exterior. Um, and so, for, yeah. So that looks like, right, in practice, whether it started with affirmations and it's like all the stuff that seems so hokey, right? Writing affirmations on, I remember on my bathroom mirror after my divorce, I had my favorite lipstick and I wrote affirmations on my mirror that I would change out every week. Um, I had post-its and I still have post-its that are like taped to my desk mm -hmm. that have different affirmations. Um, I started to pay a lot of attention to what I say, like the word, and you know, I deal in words and I believe, and this is, this is where my religion and faith background come in, that the power of life and death resides in the tongue, right? It's a scriptural... Mm -hmm text, but it also, I think, speaks to not only how we speak about ourselves, but what we think about ourselves. And this is where I got into more of what some would think of as the woo-woo side of things, but there's something to be said about the energy that our words and our thoughts have. Yeah. And so 
as I kind of went on that journey, I started paying attention to what am I saying about myself? What am I thinking about myself? And as I practiced that, like I recognized it's not about stopping, just like with meditation, mm-hmm. it's not about stopping the thought. It's not about the thought being fully eradicated per se. Like that can happen. I think that's possible. But I think the the more powerful thing that happens is that I become aware of it and I'm able to shift it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm very intentional about the words I use and the words I say. And the way that, that shows up with my clients is that I'm listening mm-hmm. intentionally to what are you saying about yourself? How do you speak about yourself? How do our conversations in the coaching container reflect themes that are either life giving or oppressive about yourself? Because until we're aware of that and notice it, we can't really shift it. And, you know, the majority of my coaching population are women. Right. Um, And it is fascinating how we talk to ourselves, what we think about ourselves, the things that we say. I mean, I had a friend just the other day who was called herself a pendeja, which is like in Spanish, like... (laughs) you know, you're an idiot. Like you're a, like a stupid, like, and I was like, don't say that about yourself. And she was like, what? And I was like, you just called yourself this. And she was like, oh, I didn't even realize it. Right. And those things that we don't even realize, I think build up within us and become, they can become devastating over time. And so for me, the practice of believing in myself led me to deeper inquiry, which then led me to actually embody ways of being that then I practice with my clients and invite my clients to. Because I think when I'm able to believe deeply in myself, as someone who is a human being, I actually grow my compassion and I'm able to have compassion for others in ways that I may not have before. And I say this with very clear understanding that it's not easy. Like, it's not easy, but then I'm like, this is the work. Mm -hmm. I love that you just said I grow. I mean, the growing of my compassion, right? Just for some reason, just, it's almost like the gardener, right? (laughs) Like planting the seeds inside of yourself, helping it grow and water it. And so I'm wondering too, then how do you show your sense, yourself, that sense of compassion when you recognize the times when you do speak negatively and change that narrative. Yeah. Um, But there are two things that come up for me when you ask that question around when I'm noticing that I'm not being that way with myself. So I was introduced to a a Hawaiian indigenous prayer and I always butcher the name, but it's called the Ho'oponopono. I can spell it because it's a lot of vowels and P's, but the H-O apostrophe O-Pinopino prayer. And the words are simple. It says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. And I repeat that mantra and I put a hand on my heart and a hand on my gut and I say it and breathe five times. Oh my God. I love you. This is great. I love you. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Right. Wonderful. And, you know, again, I, I have nothing like it's, you know, because of 
our Hawaiian and indigenous siblings that there's this gift, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a, it's a prayer for deep self-love and self-compassion. And so I use that and I share it with my clients Mm -hmm. and it's been amazing to see what happens, Mm -hmm. right? As we've been working together and I say, okay, try something with me, right? Hand on heart, hand here. We're going to breathe. We take some deep cleansing breaths. We get into our bodies. We notice what we're feeling. And then I want you to repeat after me. And I normally do it for five times. Like we do it five, we repeat it five times. Mm-hmm. When I tell you like time number two or three, they can barely get the words out. Well, I'm People sure. start crying, oh. right? Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the ways. So when something comes up, just to stop and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you, right? Yeah. Um, I think some of it, I mean, I, I'm a big journaler. And so writing out how I'm feeling, um, because when I write it, I am able to put some distance between what I'm feeling and then what I'm able to go back and notice. And in doing that, then it's like, okay, I've purged it. And then so, I mean, and this is like best possible case, because there's some days where I, I don't do the job of it. And then I know that I can start again tomorrow. And so part of it is leaning into that too, like... Each I'm day. not going to get it right each day. And, and what is getting it right, right? So um, starting over again tomorrow. I'm just going to take that with me. <laughs> Putting that in my pocket for later. Oh, that's so great. So then what have you learned the most through becoming a coach and teaching with a love ethic? I mean, maybe this was the part that you have learned already is the compassion for yourself. But have you seen like a common thread? So it never ceases to amaze me how we can simultaneously notice the power that love has, but still relegate it to a sentimental emotion mm. or a feeling. Um, you know, I, I am in the line of, and I say this with all due respect and humility, but my goal is to build on the work of people like Bell Hooks, of people like Howard Thurman, of people... I mean, even Cornell West, right? Justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. And I think was it tenderness is what love looks like or feels like in private, mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but we as a people don't love ourselves and we know that we don't love ourselves well, or we have really, I think, I don't want to say flawed because I think that the way that we think about things is directly connected to what we've been through, what we've experienced, our lives, right? But we have a disjointed, I think, relationship with love and with Mm -hmm. love of self and love of others. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the one hand, right, and I think of the whole self-love movement, it was like kind of, it started to become this, well, you have to have money to like get massages and like do these things. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's nice, but that's not self-love, Mm-mm. right? And so then it became important for me to define what I mean when I say love ethic. What does love make possible, right? Love makes possible creativity. Love makes possible liberation. Love makes possible justice. Love makes possible healing. Because I think by talking about it through those lens or through that in that way, it then becomes a little bit more real and grounded and it has more depth, right? So when I think about that with myself, when I'm utilizing a love ethic in my own life, right? I'm engaging spaces and places where I can be creative, 
I am, you know, um, seeking out my liberation and the liberation of those around me. I am actively engaging my healing work and inviting others to do the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And love, I feel like invites us, you know, and this is just coming up to me now. Like I think about, it's in Matthew, I think, where my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Like I feel like love invites us and for me, love is God. So God invites us to a different way of being that's marked by ease. And when I say that, I don't mean that life is easy. Right. I mean that we stop fighting everything mm. and that we become very clear and intentional about what we're fighting for and when we fight and when we pause or when we push through and when we pause. Yeah. Um, and so that is impacting who I am as a coach and the coaching that I do with others because my goal is ultimately for more people to embody and embrace a love ethic in their lives personally and collectively because I do believe that love has the power to heal us I just like am wrapping everything up that you have to say I feel like (laughs) I just like laid it on the ground and now I'm like rolling like a burrito (laughs) I love that I love that that's beautiful. Just rolling in the burrito. <laughs> a burrito of love. I'm in a burrito <laughs> of love. Because we love burritos. <laughs> that's, I like picture everything in movement. So that's why. <laughs> movement is my first language is what I tell people. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a little bit, I mean, I think, again, you kind of just spoke to this, but as you have talked about before, you've been able to go and experience many different things from your first job. And then now as a coach and being able to um, just interact with a number of different kinds in, of humans and people in different countries, different ethnicities. And so my question and different religions and things. So what have you learned the most about us as humans from those experiences? And maybe it mm-hmm. is this love thing you just spoke about. I think that humans have a great capacity to harm, Mm -hmm. but we also have a great capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, So no matter what country, city, culture I'm in, you see the remnants or the ongoing realities of harm in the United States as well. Right. And then you also see the people and communities that are committed to healing. Mm. and you know I don't I don't know why I think I stopped asking the question why and it's funny in coaching they they, you know when you do coach training they you talk about why why questions put people on the defense Um, and you can use them in particular ways but it has to be very nuanced when you think about when you pull out the why but in my own life I stopped asking why like why do bad things happen why are people suffering? Why, you know, all the questions of theodicy, I, I've stopped asking. Um, and partially because it just, there were never, there was never an answer to it. Yeah. And so I think the question that I ask now, um, based on my lived experience, is either a question of what now or, or who are we called to be mm-hmm. despite 
right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much pain in the world, yeah. right? There's so much suffering. There's so much, I mean, so many things that are out of our control, so many things that actually are in our control. And then that leads to more pain because then you're like, this is happening because we've allowed this to happen. We're complicit in this happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've stopped asking the why question and, and asked the question of, of what now and what is possible, mm -hmm. um, especially when we lean in to kind of that healing and love way of being. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, we talk about joy and all people want safety and all people want, you know, there's so many things that we all want ourselves and for our families and for our communities but I love I love experiencing joy in places that I go to in the various ways that it's embodied so whether it's like smoking hookah and dancing at a, a music festival in Bethlehem to like hanging out in Mexico City and like learning about tequila to like you know I'm thinking about all the places I've been hiking, you know, Table Mountain in South Africa, like you just start to, when you put yourself in people's places and communities and spaces, I think it's very important to look for the places of joy. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to see that humans have a great immense capacity to experience joy despite. And I'm not saying that to romanticize it, because one of the things I used to hate was like, oh, we would do these mission trips and everyone was so happy. I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah. What I'm saying is like, as much as suffering is a part of the human condition, I think joy is as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm about a life of, of, of joy mm -hmm. and I love to connect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also what keeps me grounded and keeps me going in the midst of all of the shit. Mm -hmm. I think too, like I keep thinking, you know, what does, what has the pandemic taught us? And I do think there's that underlining connection or I understanding that we need that connection, right? We need to be able to connect with people and experience that joy. Like it's a yes. fundamental part of who we are. Well, and there was, I mean, it's come out before, but there was recently something that just talked about isolation, right? So like when I was in Tokyo, that was the first time I learned about like cafes where you could just go in and have, and it wasn't like a sex exchange of, of sex it was like an exchange of intimacy and connection mm. because people are so isolated and people like loneliness is a epidemic yeah it is right mm. and I think that love connection community joy helps to eradicate that or at least confront it there's also professional cuddlers I've heard of that too isn't that awesome but you can just I'm go get paid to cuddle people <laughs> yes yes <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that like there is something for everything <laughs> mm -hmm. there really is. it's awesome you have been able to fight for that woman inside of you and listen to her call what can you tell to other women or persons trying to do the same but are fearful of the contagion of events that might occur if they do listen and then act on their the contagion of events. I always want to honor the fear. Like I'm not someone who's like, oh, that's not a big deal. Or like minimize it. No, the fear is real. Mm -hmm. Right? Fear paralyzes us. Fear, fear is real. Um, and in my own experience, I've noticed when I embrace the fear and show up afraid 
all of the things that I was afraid of tend to dim in the face of what I learn about myself and what's possible mm-hmm. when I show up and when I show up for myself and for that change or for that healing or for that whatever the thing is, right, that you you want to show up for. And I think that becomes important. So what is the thing that grounds you, anchors you, guides you, and motivates you ultimately? Like, so if there's something that you want to do or some part, a person that you're becoming, what is the why behind it, mm-hmm. right? For me, the why was I was not living in alignment. Mm-hmm. And I was very clear that I wanted to be in alignment. Mm-hmm. I think there has to be some clarifying of what it is I'm wanting in order to keep that front and center because the fear is going to continue. It's like fear doesn't go away. Right. Even now as an entrepreneur, like I'm afraid all the time. <laughs> like it's a lot. And being clear about my why, being clear about like those things that ground me about my, that's why I talk so much about values, like what it is I value, what it is I believe, because that reminds me in the face of fear, um, who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I I speak in movies or I speak in pop culture. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, in the first Black Panther, when, oh, rest his soul, Chadwick Boseman is, is fighting and his mom is like show them who you are right mm-hmm. and I always think about that with my fear I'm gonna show you who I am mm. in the midst of this right I am someone who who is seeking justice I'm someone who wants this whatever for my life or for my family I'm someone who is committed to entering what you're committed to yeah and like keeping that front and center I would say the other thing is it's almost impossible to do it alone any story about someone doing something by themselves, I don't believe. Sure. Yeah. I don't believe, right? Like, and partially because I don't believe we were created to do life alone. Mm-hmm. But I think what helps me move through the fear is communities of support. Right. At one point, it was the church, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In this stage in my life, it is women of diverse backgrounds that I am accountable to and accountable for Mm -hmm. and remind me of who I am when I forget because sometimes we forget and we need people outside of us to remind us. So I would say that being clear of the why of what's motivating you showing up afraid, like this fallacy that you're only going to be able to do it once you get rid of the fear. And then who is your community of support? And then what are those practices that ground you? Right, those practices that keep you coming home to yourself. And when I say practices, I'm not talking about like just journaling or affirmations. Is it dance? Is it being in nature? Is it running? Is it creating art? Is it being like, what are those practices that ground you, make you feel alive and remind you of what's possible? And then curating your life with those things so that you're able to do what it is you feel called to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) I feel like you've just given so much today and I just really appreciate <laughs> I can't your wisdom and just who you are in that you've um, have worked so hard to, to live into your values and to who, what, you know, rings true to you and 
are guiding others in that. So I think it's a huge gift. And I'm just so grateful that you live your life this way. <laughs> Thank you. I'm trying to love big and live well. And you know, that's it. It's that's great. So we are almost out of time. And I ask each one of my guests, what story are you reframing now in your life? Oh, definitely stories about who I am as a single woman. I've been divorced now 10 years, mm-hmm. which is crazy because it's mm. like 10 years ago I was an adult. I guess so. <laughs> I was 31. Um, so who I am as a single woman mm-hmm. and a single woman who does not have children of her own. Mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot of stories around that that I still struggle with. Um, and also I am reframing the story of what it means to be a businesswoman and entrepreneur, because I think I had one idea of that. And then I I've spent a ton of money learning other people's ideas of that. And now I'm in the space of like, okay, what feels right for me in that? Right. Um, yeah, those are the two things that immediately come to mind, the, the stories that I'm reframing. I like that. I love, I think it's also, I mean, we can always learn from people, but I also think there's like so much truth and like our business will work the best too when we do it in a way that works for us, right? That's, that's it. Um, and I feel like these last six years have been a journey of figuring out what works best for me. Mm-hmm. And there's some things I figured out and there's some things that I'm still unfolding for sure it takes a lot of work as a business owner myself (laughs) Mm -hmm. so how I know that people are going to want to read your book now after this podcast you have not and I also know that maybe some people will contact you for coaching so how can they love that yeah so I am on social media at love big coach so twitter instagram facebook i'm on tiktok but that i'm just really playing with right now um <laughs> but love big coach you can find me um and then my website is my name rosella it'll be lovebigcoach.com soon um we're, we're moving that around but yeah um and my book is available wherever books are sold and i think to that point of reframing stories i'm also reframing the story about my first solo book and the struggle that I had with writing it and when it Mm. came out and just feeling like it was not what I wanted it to be Mm. Um, because I've just now started writing again and my book Mm. was published in May of 2019 and Mm. I signed the contract in 2016 so it's been six years and it that's a traumatic experience for a few reasons but also I just did not feel like I did what I wanted to do. So I'm reframing the story around that as well. Wow. That's (laughs) fascinating to hear. It really is. Well, so thank you for sharing that. But also, I mean, I get that because we have visions and um, ideas of what we want something to be. Yeah. I thought you were gonna say visions and expectations. (laughs) Around what we want things to be. (laughs) Any people who are Lutheran will get that joke. No, but so, but then also understand, I I hope you know, though, too, like what you produced has changed people's lives too, and has like presented it. I mean, again, like, I just feel like what, what did come out was something that was vulnerable and I think authentic 
and I could hear your, I could hear your voice in it because I've, you know, we've talked, we've had drinks together. Yes. <laughs> you speak, that has come out. And so, but I can get like to um, having a vision of what we want and not necessarily having it be exactly what we dreamed of. In the heart I hope of. you listen to yourself after you do these podcasts, because I think what you just said is an important reminder. And also you have a podcast that like you put out in the world. It's true. It's a big deal. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> you're not I trying. You're doing. I you're not enjoy. trying. You're doing it. Well, I've been blessed to be able to interview some wonderful people. So that's what keeps me going because I just love talking to people. So it's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you, Rosella. Thank you.